0: Hello and welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles. But recently returned from the Finger Lakes region of New York. Just a couple of weeks ago, Wendy and I took a trip to upstate New York. We traveled all over the Finger Lakes and Catskill Mountains and visited family and some friends who do some incredible farming and make some incredible wine and cider. Or at least they would if they had any fruit. I say that because this year, following a very warm April an unseasonably maybe record-setting warm april which caused the trees to bloom and set fruit in mid-may the entire northeast experienced a freeze event much worse than any late frost in which temperature was around 25 degrees fahrenheit for about five hours one night when it hit it destroyed one of the biggest blooms the area had seen in years now many orchards are simply barren I walked through hundreds of trees that had no fruit at all. This came after last year's off year, when most of the trees produced a greatly reduced crop as part of their evolved cyclical reproductive schedule. I can't imagine trying to operate my winery in California without grapes for two years, but that's exactly what many cider makers in the Northeast face right now. And grapes have been affected as well, but it remains to be seen just how badly. I kept hearing a phrase that has sort of haunted me. Everyone kept saying, quote, never before. Never before. That's how the severity of this freeze event was described. I began writing this while stranded in a hotel in Geneva, New York. I say stranded because our flight back to LA was canceled and we couldn't get another flight for three days. And I was stranded due to the air quality as well. The air quality index, as I started to write this, was close to 200. That means that there, On the verdant shores of Lake Seneca, in a quaint town surrounded by farms and forests, the air outside was the most polluted and unhealthy air on the planet because of, again, unprecedented wildfires in Canada. This too seems to be a never before event. I've gotten used to never before because of living in California. In my 26 years of living in Los Angeles, I've lived through multiple of the driest years on record for the western United States. During that time, I also saw and breathed the smoke of fires that were the largest and most destructive ever seen in the West. And now, the 2022-23 winter will go down as one of the wettest winters on record. Extremity and severity are our future. Never before is happening every year now. Never before is a phrase that will become common to all of us wherever we live. As I sat trapped in my hotel writing about this, I looked around and saw a lobby area full of dozens of people who seemed completely unperturbed by these ecological and environmental realities, visible right outside the window in the extremely hazy air. I began to feel discouraged, I'm sure you've been there. What will it take to wake us up? But then I remembered some other ecological realities I'd noticed during our visit to New York the farmers themselves were one of these realities. Dismayed, for sure, but undaunted, this never-before-spring was already activating deep wells of creativity and resourcefulness in everyone I spoke to. More than ever before, diversity was rising to the top of the list of paths into the future. And I don't know if you've ever experienced living through a, a terrible storm, or flood, or earthquake, or other natural calamity but if you have you've probably experienced that sense of community that happens when the dust settles and everyone comes out to survey the damage and people begin to spontaneously talk to each other and make sure that everyone is okay and help with anything that they can i felt this sense of community on an almost regional scale in new york the farmers were commiserating sharing checking on each other trying to learn from each other offering help to each other our car service driver was another of these ecological realities that encouraged me When our flight was canceled and every rental car place was sold out for a 100 miles, we called a car service to be dropped at a nearby hotel to wait out our multi-day unplanned stay. But when our driver heard our story, he refused to let us be the battered victims of fate. He inspired us to call the airline and find a flight on a day earlier out of another airport and promised to get us there. He drove us an hour and a half, twice, on two separate days, picking us up the second time, even though we had to stay an hour and a half from where he lived. On top of this, he had an infectiously positive attitude, (laughs) carried our bags, recommended hotels, and gave us receipts so that we could get reimbursed for our unexpected travel expenses. It occurred to me that when things happen that have never happened before, we get to see people act in ways that they have never had the opportunity to act before. Yes, at times, we can be discouraging, but we are almost never always discouraging. We can be, and often are, creative, resourceful, caring, inspiring, heroic, and compassionate in ways that can change people's lives. As one farmer I talked to said, only a tiny percentage of people are crazy. The rest of us just want to pay our bills and get along. I've dedicated Centralis, my winery, and the Organic Wine Podcast to promoting the knowledge and practices that reduce the number of times we have these never-before events. I've used these businesses to ask how to build a wine culture that is so diverse and adaptable that it can weather whatever comes. I've dedicated my time and resources to inspiring you to rise to the challenges of the future and act in ways that you never have before, in the best sense. And I've reached a point where I want to do more. I want to work on projects that will extend beyond my lifetime to an unlimited number of generations from now. So I'm putting together a business plan, and I'm looking for an investor or investors who share this vision and would like to build something inspiring, hopeful, beautiful, and delicious that also regenerates the earth and builds the health of the land and the community of living creatures who are part of it. If you have a serious interest in supporting this kind of project financially, please reach out to me at connect at organicwinepodcast.com, and we can schedule a call to discuss if it might be a good fit for you. And if you aren't an investor, I'm still excited for you to be part of this future project in other ways. And I will keep you posted as it develops. In the meantime, I'm going to show some love to a farmer and buy some delicious wine and cider. (laughs) Now, on to this episode, which is pretty special. My guest for this episode is Mike Biltonen. Mike is the co-owner with his wife of Know Your Roots, an orchard and vineyard consultation and management business in the Northeast U.S., Mike has spent almost 40 years working with orchards, vineyards, and other specialty crops. He's farmed in Virginia, Minnesota, Vermont, California, and New York. Over the past 20 years, his passion for sustainable agriculture has evolved into a profound dedication to the principles and practices of ecologically focused biodynamic agriculture. He serves as the president of the Josephine Porter Institute for Applied Biodynamics. For the last 15 years, Mike has consulted for orchardists and farmers while also operating his own biodynamically enlivened orchard and mushroom operation in central New York. He keeps alive the legacy of his friend, the late Michael Phillips, and helps maintain Phillips' holistic orchard network. This was a very special conversation for many reasons, not the least of which was because it was the first in-person interview I've done on location. Mike was gracious enough to spend a morning guiding me through his newly established apostrophe orchard. As we walk through the trees and other plants, Mike gives us an incredible tour of an orchard established and maintained ecologically with the principles and practices of biodynamics and a permaculture perspective. You'll hear the sounds of birds and orchard life all around us in the background as we talk. Since this happened within the context of the freeze event that left no fruit on the trees of apostrophe orchard, we discuss what the future of permaculture and agriculture might look like from both a big perspective and a technical holistic orchard care perspective. This in-depth conversation culminates in a discussion of high-frequency beverages and how human energy has a vital impact on the farm environment and its products. And this is just part one. <laughs> in part two, to be released soon, we leave the orchard and walk into the forest and the conversation becomes influenced by things more ancient, primal, mystical, and even magical by the end. So stay tuned and enjoy.
1: <laughs> well, I'll start by saying then that um uh, Mike Biltonen, an and thank you very much for, for coming out to Apostrophe Orchard today, which, is, which I've named it, yes. Okay. Why uh, is that? Um, well, there's actually a, a Frank Zappa song. Okay. where they talk um, about how the apostrophe is like the answer to it all because it it brings things together okay. and there's a very long description that Frank didn't actually give right. but that his son Dweezel gave okay. which if you google it it's a very long explanation and the song is very bizarre but I like the whole idea of naming something that was like it was like bringing things together it was you know coalescing um, you know different elements of nature with you know our involvement as, as farmers and growers um, with what the land had to offer so you know it, to some degree it, that to me speaks to this this concept of terroir more than anything it's yeah. like because terroir is not any one thing it's like all these things that are kind of brought together yeah. and so that's how apostrophe came about um, So, and my wife and I co-own Know Your Roots, so this is basically a project of Know Your Roots. Um, Debbie's a community herbalist, and I'm the farmer, as she likes to say, so she's the forager and I'm the farmer. Um, I have, I've been been farming for 40 years now, and I started out at a very large commercial orchard in central Virginia. Um, I didn't know how large at the time, but it was 1,500 acres. Um, 900 acres of apples, 600 acres of peaches, very conventional. I was totally blind going in. I had no idea how actually destructive it it was um, just with all the pesticide use. Um, But nonetheless, that's kind of where I cut my teeth and got to understand a lot of things. I had a a really good mentor there who became uh, one of my best friends um, as well. And so we spent a lot of off-hours time just talking about you know, orcharding and life and everything else. Um, I left that orchard in 1989, went to Cornell, got my master's degree in pomology, started a PhD project, left that because I really wanted to be in the field, went to Minnesota to work at a large orchard out there, which was basically the home of the Honeycrisp apple. And that was a very different, but very enriching, rewarding experience because I was able to, really begin to work towards this idea of what implementable integrated pest management meant. Whereas at my previous job, it was just sort of calendar spraying. I mean, it wasn't quite totally blind like that, but it was very much, um, you know, you would just go spray, kill everything you could, and then you'd do it again in two weeks. Um, whereas at Peppen Heights Orchard, it was more of a, um, it was a real learning experience and there was a lot of flexibility to To learn about things, to do research, to investigate, um, and also to grow a crop of apples that was there. Um, And it was interesting because it also was synced up with when um, a certified organic standard had just started to come into play. There was finally real exposure to what kind of sprays were going on in conventional orcharding. Um, there was the whole Alar incident at the end of the 80s, and then uh, you know, Meryl Streep got involved, Mothers and Others for a Livable Planet, NRCS, uh, or not, not NRCS, um, National Resources Defense Fund got involved, and consumers became much more aware of where their, um, you know, their food was coming from, and particularly with apples now kind of in the spotlight. And so, while we certainly weren't organic, and in the early 90s, we were always told that unless you were like really small-scale backyard, you couldn't be organic, I started asking those questions. And in 1999, when I moved back to New York, um, I was in the Hudson Valley for a few years, I kept pursuing and pushing harder, asking those questions. And, and I have to say that uh, Michael Phillips, who was a good friend of mine um, and wrote you know, several very seminal books on holistic orcharding, was one that I think really began to help us all understand that this was something possible that could happen, and it was more than just about how do we grow organic apples. It was like how can we really work within the orchard environment in a very you know cohesive you know way, um, having a light touch, working with all the things that, to to a large degree. Um, the academic world was telling us were relatively unimportant and that's a whole rabbit hole we could go down another time um, and then you know and so and then I, I was at an orchard in the Hudson Valley for a few years uh, and then I took a job out here at Red Jacket Orchards in Geneva uh, I was there for four years and then I decided to go into consulting full-time and then um, like I was saying earlier in 2015 I started grafting all these trees with the idea of like let me let's have a real orchard. Um, let's see what we can do with it. And let's begin to explore some of these concepts a little more deeply. Um, you know, and that that also brought me into biodynamics, etc. And here we are today.
0: Well, you're so your your involvement with biodynamics coincided with the start, start of apostrophe orchard. Um, no,
1: I was I was interested but not as involved with biodynamics even before apostrophe. Okay. But it wasn't something that I could actively pursue because you know my bosses were you know it was just like something that was very foreign to them.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but here I could begin begin to do that, and the more that I got involved with biodynamics, um, you know, several organizations, et cetera, the more I could talk to people in a way that they could relate to what biodynamics meant to them. So they weren't, we didn't immediately go down that rabbit hole of the cosmic woo woo type of stuff, but we could talk about how practical biodynamics is really just being about a good regenerative farmer and how all these other things are they add they add to that in a really big way because if you're if you're not already a good farmer a good orchardist biodynamics isn't going to do much for you and so you have to kind of layer these things in um so yeah
0: you were talking about going down that rabbit hole of all the things that are that weren't considered important by science i we're both pretty far down that rabbit hole i think yeah consistently yeah 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 <laughs> um the when you were an apostrophe it's nice just to start here maybe because we're standing next to a guild if you want to talk about i don't know maybe just if since we're standing here just talking about what this what a guild is and what what you were doing when you planted this little area
1: sure well permaculture is actually something that i came to at about the same time i came to biodynamics i i knew of it um and I'll be perfectly honest that you know my brain was still kind of entrained to my academic years and working in the industry for a long time and so it was hard for me to kinda figure out how that worked into being a commercial orchardist because at the end of the day, as I tell people, you know, if if this isn't financially viable in some way, shape, or form, you're just not going to be doing it for very long. Right. And particularly, like, after this year where we had this big freeze, you know, there are people who are set up to be able to weather that, and there are other people who who aren't. Um, But that said is then I started thinking about and reading about what other plants meant to that apple tree. And a lot of this then relates to things that, that Elaine Ingham and, and Michael Phillips were talking about, which is that mycorrhizal network. And then, of course, there's Paul Stamets and everybody else who's yeah. talking about that underground neural network, et cetera. And, and so I started thinking about complementary plants that could work in a guild um, with the primary, crop, primary plant crop, which would be apples in this case, Um, that would generate some other type of a crop, but would also help to diversify the mycorrhizal network that's underneath the ground, because one of the things that I found out is that um, the less diverse the above ground part, uh, the less diverse the, the orchard ecosystem is, the less diverse the mycorrhizal network is. And so, because sometimes mycorrhizae have, and some plants have very specific mycorrhizal associations. So if we can diversify that in a way that's complementary, you know, both economically, ecologically, mycorrhizally, um, we can begin to, I think, enliven that soil in a way that goes beyond just putting compost or wood chips or, you know, whatever you're doing down there. Um, And so these initial guilds I planted, you know, there's the hosta berry that's here, there's um, olali berry that's here, there's the apple, And those are the three that that are in here right now, and you can see that the hosta berry has gotten quite quite big. Yeah, it looks happy. But the other thing is kind of a very non or unintentional um, thing is to allow other plants to come in, and through what I'm calling selective weeding, (laughs) allow things that are non-competitive that could be beneficial to stay in within that guild. And to take out other things. So things like grasses, which, yeah. you know, they provide good hay and they're mulch and stuff. So I have no problem kind of yeah. trimming them down and leaving them there. But over here, you know, we've got things like there's some red clover that's in here. Yeah. We've got yarrow, which is the primary biodynamic herb. Right. Um, you can see the olali berries are just kind yeah. of popping up all over the place. Um, there's other types of, you know, flowering plants that are going to come in and you begin to you know, really, and there's daisies of course, um, and you really kind of enrich the whole environment around the tree and that to me is, it's not, I wouldn't say that strictly by definition kind of a Bill Mollison permaculture guild, but to me it's something that's allowing for that environment to build around that apple tree.
0: To be diverse yep. and to have a community rather than like a monoculture. and. I guess if you're a gardener, maybe companion planting is the idea of a guild, right? Like it's a very similar, yeah, like concept. A simplified version of it. Yeah. 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 Um, well, now I have a really interesting. I mean, I, my mind is racing because you said some people were set up to deal with this crazy freeze event that mm-hmm. you had in May. How were they set up? Like, what would what did that look like? Did anybody survive that? Like.
1: Well some people did survive it yeah I mean it was there
0: it, were there things you could do even if you were in a prone like a freeze-prone area that you, to prove, to save the fruit
1: well, that's that's a good question and I think it's it's a it's an area of research that really needs to happen the problem is that in an in situ situation in an orchard you can't predict when you're gonna get those events so you can't right. like really set up an experiment right. to right. say well this worked and that didn't right, right, you know but I think conceptually there are things that we can begin to be prepared for uh-huh. and with the unpredictable nature of of the weather you know whether it's in the middle of the summer or in the winter early spring whatever I think we have to start to just be prepared to do certain things or if we don't want to do those certain things just be prepared for the repercussions of that
0: so like what, what would those things well, be? I'm just curious yeah
1: about. so typically growers grape growers and apple growers you would use wind machines um or fires right you know and it could be smudge pots or it could be open fires right um but there's a whole other line of investigation that that we really haven't explored which is um supercharging essentially the the so the, the problem is or the i guess the objective is is that what we want to do is we want to be able to prevent two things during a frost or freeze event one we want to be able to drop the freezing point of the cytoplasm in the cells Okay, and the other is that we want to prevent ice nucleation on the surface of the plant. Mm-hmm. And if we can do those two things, then we provide a modicum of, of um, protection to the plant. Now, it's only going to be marginal. If it went down to 18 degrees, we're kind of like, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know kissing our collective butts goodbye. Yeah. Um, but when it gets down to like 29, 30, 28, 27, you know, if we can somehow figure out to buy two, three, four, five degrees of protection right. by reducing the freezing point of the, the cells, or preventing ice nucleation, um, then we can skate through these things in, in fairly good fashion. Okay. And the ways that we would do that would be, you know, leading up to a frost event, so we'd need good forecasting tools. We would have basically gotten spray mineral fertilizer, foliar fertilizers like fish and micronutrients and other potassium and stuff. To just kind of supercharge it and get it into into the the plant itself, mm-hmm. and the more minerals that are in there, just like salt water. I mean, salt water doesn't freeze at 32 mm-hmm. degrees; it's going to freeze at whatever the concentration of the salt allows it to freeze at. Right. So yeah. that's one thing, um, and then the other would be to think about um, applying bio- biologically some non-ice nucleating bacteria to the surface of the plant. And these exist, we know what they are, Got it. Um, to outcompete the ice nucleating bacteria. Right. Because once you get that first crystal of ice, then it just kind of takes right. off that way. Right. Um, and then the other is um, actually just applying sugar. so that, And that would help to reduce the freezing point or the accumulation of ice on the surface of the plant as well. Yeah. So I think those three things, but we have to be prepared to go out and really get at it. Right, right. Um, and then kind of the fourth thing, which gets more into this biodynamic realm, is the use of valerian, and that's where we start talking about kind of the the cosmic warmth, you will, of of applying valerian the night before a frost. You're bringing in this cosmic warmth, um, which you know you can. It's it's associated. Uh, Valerians associated with with Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Um, Light, opportunity, phosphorus, and when you think about it, you know, light, warmth, phosphorus—they use it. You, know, you can start mm. fires with phosphorus. Um, there's more than just, I think, a mild cosmic connection to that, um, to how it can help prevent, you know, frost. It, you know, it's it's only going to give you a certain amount of protection, but it's just another tool that we need to I think start considering. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: So. Okay. Do you know anybody? that tried this this time <laughs> or they had the warning to do anything I to... no, I don't okay. actually yeah,
1: yeah. Um, well actually yeah. I do one um, oh, okay. Todd Cavallo I, oh, really? he, he, okay. he rung me up and he, he had said what can I do to kind of help this I said you know realizing it was the night before I think it was when he called me I said just add some sugar add some molasses to your spray when you go out and spray and see what happens and um, I mean if you've been to his place you know it's a very flat site so it's pro if there's going to be a frost it's going to be there yeah um and it seemed the sh- some of the primary shoots seemed to come through okay and others didn't um so you know Results, yeah maybe. and i can't say that anybody else tried it um yeah. but uh sounds like wild, right? yeah, wild arc yeah wild arc and then seth jones up at east hollow he was going to try and actually the bi- a biodynamic client i have in the hudson valley was going to they were both going to try valerian but it was both it was too windy um for my one biodynamic client and it was going to just get too cold for for um, seth to be able to apply it so there are constraints in terms of what you can actually do and expect out of something Mm -hmm. Um, but i think that looking at this going forward we just need to kind of have that arsenal ready to go and if it doesn't happen all the better but if it does we're ready to go
0: interesting yeah i mean we were at eve's Uh, with Autumn and Ezra last night and they I mean uh, Autumn was said it was 25 degrees for five hours so would that even help with would this stuff help or is it more thinking bigger picture like diversifying (laughs) the orchard and you know having multiple things when those kind of things happen right because I mean how do you I don't know like that's based on the the range that you said you could of protection you might get to skate through that sounds like it would be out of that range in the bad sense potentially uh,
1: it, it it could be and it, I think a lot of it depends on when you start like with some of those applications so really. you can't start when it's 25 but if you start when it's 32 and actually with some of the mineral sprays if you start a couple of days ahead you're building up that protection layering that protection in now we don't know if it's going to work right. because we have nobody's done the research but right. it conceptually it makes sense Got it. Um, and we know things like kelp kelp sprays for example which are very rich in uh, certain plant growth hormones as well as certain types of minerals um, In some areas I have heard where was it? The, maybe I can't remember it was some it wasn't the United States it was somebody someplace else somebody sent me this But where they've used, you know kelp sprays before a frost and freeze event and they've been quite successful at preventing it um, so
0: so and observationally what I noticed why uh, we walked a bunch of land this week and where we saw apples were uh at a high elevation site where it's you know it was like the highest elevation in the area so everything sort of sloped away from it Mm -hmm. tons of apples there was like around 2,000 you know like that 1,900 to 2,000 feet and then uh on a piece of property that a lot of the apples were impacted the trees we saw a tree that was up against in a little corner with hardwoods around and partially over it Mm -hmm. that shelter seemed to protect it it had apples on Mm -hmm. it as well even though other trees on the property had none um so i don't know those were some observational things
1: well i think that's i mean that's yeah that was one of the other things um as you were saying that it came to mind is i think we need to rethink tree tree and and vine um, architecture yeah because what we what we don't when you have particularly with grapes where you have sort of just a vertical trellis yeah early in the season, you don't have any canopy. So right. any heat that's on the ground is just gonna go right up. And particularly that night where it was very clear, um, if my recollection's right, I think it yeah. was, um, the heat just goes you know, yeah. through, the, through the roof. And so over this one vineyard that I'm helping get established in the Hudson Valley, it's a, it's a good site. It's got, it's both high elevation and got good drainage and air movement. So that's working in its favor already but we're thinking of kind of this Watson trellis, um, approach one, because he wants to run uh, sheep through there eventually, yeah. but also as a way to create more of a horizontal element to that, that yeah. trellis yeah. to help capture some of that heat. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with high density apples. I just don't, you're just not going to be able to capture any ground heat, um, at that point. But, um, apart from that, there's, there's so much warmth that's, um, that's captured in the soil leading up to an event like that, particularly this year where we had a lot of warm events, that if we can figure out how to release that at the right time, mm. capture it in the tree or the um, the trellis canopy, um, we we have that potential. And that kind of is that you, know, you have the overhead structure, which helped protect the, the trees. Right. But also if you can do so, something oh, uh, with the tree amazing. and trellis architecture to capture any heat coming up. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, yeah. So I think there's a lot of things we can do and we, we don't have to, when I think about releasing heat, you know, we could do things like just run a, a, a disc over it um, just to create right. frozen soil. I think ideally it would be good to either do like a 3 tine subsoiler or even a keyline plow, which will really allow some of that heat to come up. Interesting. Yeah. Um, again, nobody's explored this and it right. would be a lot of work. You'd have to be prepared to do it yeah. and you want to release that heat at the right time. But, you know.
0: Right. And I also, I mean, I'm just thinking of all kinds of stuff. Like if you have a really active compost pile that you can start spreading out, right? Exactly. Or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, the other thing, I mean, barring, you know, using all of these and let's say they all fail, it seems like, you know, going back to what we're standing next to, like diversification instead of just thinking of yourself as an apple grower, like, I mean, this is what I've been talking about, with like some other orchardists. They're like, you know, we're not going to be apple growers anymore. (laughs) We're going to be sheep farmers, apple growers, you know, like duck farmers. And, uh, something's going to pan out that year. We don't know which one, but we won't count on any of them, you know, kind of thing where it's like having multiple things seems like kind of the way forward. If, because the other thing I keep hearing is like, we've never seen like, this is the first time I've ever seen this in my lifetime Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I'm like, you know, I'm beginning to realize this is probably a phrase we're going to hear every year now in some different way for some different event and Right for the foreseeable future. It's like, it's never been this bad before, you know? And so it's like, how do you, yeah, how do you survive that kind of a future, you know, where it's just continual extremes, setting records every year in, in some terrible way, <laughs> whether it's fires right. in California or floods or droughts, like we've gone back and forth, the wettest winter this past winter, before that, the driest winter. Right. Know? Um, so yeah. Or the driest year yeah. and wetest year. So. Well
1: I think I mean, you know, and this this will come <laughs> come across as a little dry I think to some people, but all of farming is basically risk management. Mm-hmm. And everything you do is just an insurance policy. Yeah. And so, you know, when we think about drought, if you don't have a way to get water, especially to young trees, then you're not you're not I don't think you're being a good risk manager as a farmer. If you're not spraying your trees somehow um you're not being a re- good risk manager i think that and look i have very good friends that believe in an absolute no spray approach but the fact is is that outside of a couple of species apples are not native to yeah. the united states <laughs> and a lot of the pests that are here are not native to where they came from and so there's like that there's no none of this this evolutionary synchrony to allow the trees to be able to adapt as as quickly as possible um to some of these pressures that here so they're in a you know, and it's only been a few hundred years. When we talk about evolution, we're talking about, you know, tens of thousands of years for new species to really develop for things to truly genetically diversify and adapt. And so I think we've kind of boiled everything down to, are we talking about true genetic adaptation or are we talking about ecological adaptation? And I'm all for plant breeding. I mean, this is, I think this is great. I know that, I mean, everybody who's doing that kind of stuff, um, um, You know whether it's in grapes or apples it's it's a tremendous lift and we have tools that we can use to speed up that process but it still takes years to be able to get a new right uh, a new variety um you know developed and tested and then released and is it work um i mean there are people um like my friend matt kaminsky who's you know he's out there in the world collecting varieties um you know from the uh central massachusetts area and i've got a friend in vermont who's doing the same and I think that's, you know these locally adapted varieties, they're not necessarily genetically distinct, because I bet if we ran the DNA, they'd be very close to varieties that are not well adapted to that climate or didn't survive well. But what they are is ecologically adapted. They have just enough of a push in one direction or the other um, to make them more viable in that area. And he, But even if you took that variety which is locally um, adapted um, and used it in a breathing program, You know, it's going to take years before you figure out whether you brought the right genes over, um, you know, into that. And I I, I totally support that. But for me to be able to go out and work with different plants and to work with the soil health and the environment, that stuff I can do every year. I can do that every day that I'm out there in the field while we also do this other work, which is kind of on a longer timeline. Right, right. Um, And that'll help us, I think, also begin to... Um, help our orchards and us begin to adapt and survive some of these big swings and climate
0: yeah that's great well, that was a fun uh exploration yeah because <laughs> i feel it's so topical right now i mean i think it's on everybody's mind this year it's i think it's really important to talk about these things yeah. and you just covered some great stuff that i think will be helpful for a lot of people but yeah. you want to go back to what you're doing here i mean talking about the spraying that you're doing and and just or we, we can just walk and you sure. can talk about whatever comes to mind as we walk yeah but if as we get up to this next section what in terms of spraying what are you uh how you how are you treating these guys
1: um well it's um i'm very cognizant of the biological realities of growing apples um and even though i've got 130 different varieties here you know they're going to be susceptible to in, in varying ways different all the various diseases that are out there the insects that are out there and I should say that you know I set, I I planted this orchard with the idea that I was in a position where I could kind of allow it to fail so I could try things here to see if they worked before I actually recommended them to a client or a fellow grower Um, you know and if it did work great if not you know, then we could throw that one on the burn pile and <laughs> right, right. go back. So, but the spray program is it's 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 pretty minimal in the overall scheme of things. It's very holistic, um, and we're relying uh, at this time of the year we're relying more on um, some fermented plant teas that we're making, and that's like a whole other area of of, of investigation that we're going through right now. Um, of the different phytochemicals that different types of plants in the environment have, you know, and right now we're focused on six. Um, We have, there's two mucilaginous plants. There's, there's plantain and comfrey. There's two bulbous plants, um, daffodils and garlic. And then there's two um, of the biodynamic plants, which are, which is horsetail and nettles. Um, And we're making fermented plant teas of all those, which is what's sitting over in those white barrels over there. And we're, we're still putting in some manufactured products, say like double nickel, which is a biological product and Cueva, which is a low dose copper product to help augment all of that. Um, but we're really focusing on the nutritional aspects of the trees um, and not just from a, a, a mineral standpoint or a, a brick standpoint, but from a phytochemical standpoint. Cause those are the things that, that that's what gives any organism um, the ability to fend off certain diseases or whatever, you know, are going on. Um, it's like using elderberry syrup, you know, it's an immune booster and, you know, it's not going to make you better immediately, but, you know, it, it will help to boost the immune system if you take it every day. And so we're using that same sort of concept um, in the orchard of just of focusing primarily on plant teas um, and biologicals.
0: Are you getting the plants from the orchard or is that? We're getting them
1: from where we can find them. Okay.
0: Some here, some yeah. there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the, comf- the comfrey we can collect here in the orchard. Um, the nettles we collect in the orchard. Uh, the plantain you can collect anywhere. So yeah. that's not a big deal. Um, the horsetail I buy. Uh, I buy it from the Josephine Porter Institute for okay. Applied Biodynamics. Um, and the, uh, the garlic we're going to start to grow next year. Okay. So we'll plant it this fall and then we'll have our own source of that, which is very interesting because it, it actually helps to pull things into the plant, the garlic does.
0: And do you use the bulbs of the daffodils or, did you, or tulips? What is it? You uh, it?
1: Well, no. The, so daffodils, daffodils and garlic were the two bulbous plants. So yeah. So you use the bulbs of them. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: And what, how, so what does that do? Can you talk about which each of those do for, I mean, or are supposed to do or are supposed to add or help with?
1: Sure. Um, well, all plants have a few basic categories of phytochemicals that are out there. Um, there are there's uh, alkaloids that are out there. There's phenolics. Um, there's tannins. Um, there's um, um, polys- polysaccharides, um, and there's one other that's escaping my mind right now. But each of these categories brings a different um, effect to the plant physiology. Okay. And so, in the case of like daffodils, it's always been I guess, known in air quotes that uh, if you plant daffodils around your apple tree, um, it'll ward off voles, Um, you know. And so it had me ask the question is, why is that? And so a quick Google search, a few scientific papers, and we realized that daffodils have 300 different alkaloids in them. and that those alkaloids are toxins um you know i mean the most probably the most famous in agriculture is nicotine which they've banned but i mean alkaloids provide a modicum of of and so i think that the voles know that this is not something they want to eat so what if we instead of trying to plant daffodils over the entire landscape what if we were able to take a small amount of that concentrate that in so it gets into kind of a it, this isn't spagyrics, so anybody out there who knows what that is, it's like um, this isn't spagyrix, but basically concentrating what those daffodils have and spraying that and trying to capture that alkaloid energy. Okay. Um, comfrey is in the same way, um, okay. has alkaloid energy. Um, and they, I, I can't, I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but each of those has a different set of phytochemicals that spur the plant into a higher level of its own, you know, uh, immune status, if you will, or resistance status. And what we're trying to do is, in addition to providing those unique substances, is we're also trying to trigger um, an induced systemic resistance or a systemic acquired resistance pathway in the plant that triggers its ability to, to produce its own internal phytochemicals. Got it. So we're coming from the outside with some sprays and, on, and it's producing some on the inside.
0: How hard... Is it to ferment these? Do you just throw them in with some water? Or yeah, we
1: just, I mean, you know, the beauty of having a, being married to a community herbalist and learning a lot <laughs> about herbalism is like we just make a, uh, we don't even really make a decoction. We just make a tea out of it. Okay. And then we'll let it ferment for a few days in like a five-gallon bucket, and then we'll dilute it further into more water and just over time allowing that to, um, to, to ferment. And we'll add more plant matter and more water if we need it. Stirred every once in a while, so it stays aerobic and doesn't go anaerobic.
0: And do you do you do yeah? So very low maintenance. It sounds like. Do you do any sugar addition to activate the biology in there of any kind? Or well,
1: no, we actually don't. We do when we do EM one or if we're doing any like true biological. Okay. Um, but for these, we're not adding sugar or anything. And in part, it's because the plants have their own sugars. Yeah. And so. it's like it's like doing a wild yeast fermentation with cider or wine I mean you're just taking what comes in on the apple or the cluster and seeing what happens Um, but also just you know just time and it's sitting in there yeah Yeah.
0: what's the longest amount of time that it might sit
1: oh we'll make that'll last all season oh great yeah so yeah I mean we'll start them as early as we can Um, this year we're going to uh, we're gonna dry a bunch of the herbs so that next spring we can start it even earlier
0: Oh, fantastic! Um,
1: so we don't have to wait for them yeah, to yeah. grow out in the spring going like well, where are the nettles? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, but yeah, we'll, we'll do some of that this year and um, or this this fall okay. Or throughout the season we'll dry them as they come in and then we'll have some next spring and then we'll use fresh as well
0: And it looks like you have them on the south side of the Orchard is that right? Mm-hmm. So they're in the shade a little bit, up against the trees. there? Yeah,
1: I didn't. Yeah, we didn't want them to be you know, baked, baked, and I didn't want them to be totally in the dark. I wanted a little bit of heat, but yeah. you know, yeah,
0: yeah, okay,
1: cool. Um, nice. So yeah, and you know, the again, the understory part, and this is the I guess the other part of that story is, you know, the understory is um, we're allowing different types of plants to come in and establish themselves, and and allowing the ones that we feel have the most benefit to this non-specific guild, if you will, um, to to dominate that part. Because you know, from a herbalist standpoint, you know, plants that show up, particularly if they show up in numbers, are telling you something about what that that area needs. Right. So if you're seeing a lot of dandelions or daisies or plantain or whatever, it's telling you quite a bit about. Um, you know what that particular area needs or that land needs and which is actually a good thing to say because where we're standing right now everything in this direction is was old vineyard when I when I planted the orchard and when we worked up the ground you know we would get old grape roots and stuff i mean okay. it had been cleared but you know we were still finding lots of roots yeah. but everything to the west down the hill this was like old just kind of scrubby pine forest and had some fair, actually fairly large pine trees on it okay which we cleared so as far as i know it was never vineyard okay um but each of these areas um the trees are growing differently there's different types of plants that are coming up you know, you know we can yeah. see that there's yarrow there's some valerian there's you know some yeah. queen anne's lace that's coming in Um, So it's kind of interesting to see how these two sections are changing because this is still recovering from the trees that we pulled out of it you know eight years ago.
0: Now why is this open? Why has this not been planted or and why are you mowing it instead of letting it grow?
1: Um, The idea would all from the beginning has been kind of also to be able to do workshops here.
0: Ah, okay.
1: So So I wanted to have kind of a teaching space. Um, We are going to build a small kind of equipment shed here this summer and put in a composting toilet and stuff. Okay, Um, nice. So, but this is just basically a place where we could be kind of in the center of the orchard and do some teaching and workshops. Great. You know, yeah. Um,
0: Do you want to walk up? Yeah, let's keep doing that. So you're tying down some of these instead of trellising them tie it down
1: some... Right. Well, the, I mean, the idea is that w- whenever you pull down a branch, you, you're you essentially weakening it, but you're shifting the, the plant growth hormone balance in the tree away from something that's vegetative, if it's growing more upright, to something that's going to set spurs and, and flower buds for next year. Um, and this is, I mean, it's it's a very common practice um, with, with trellis apples, where you're tying branches down. Got it. Here so, you just or, have to
0: literally, like yeah like a tent stake with a rope down yep. to the ground yep nice
1: Yep. and uh and yeah. i mean it had a gorgeous bloom on it this year like a lot of peoples did and then now there's nothing but you know the plus side is that it's going to have a really good bloom next year <laughs> we hope. Yes. yes
0: Barring some other catastrophic event always the optimist yes <laughs> i love it yeah, no, it's funny. I was talking to Eric at Redbird, and he was like, "Yeah, we've got a few apples left." But he's like, "I'm not even counting on those. We might get hail in September and destroy the rest of the apples that we have." Um, he's like, "Until they're on the press, we have no apples."
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, Eric's Eric's also a good friend, and he's like, he's he's one I think that mentally and philosophically, just he's like up up for whatever nature is going to give him in that given year. Yeah. And Redbird is is designed to to do that and he's like he's a wonderful grower very insightful you know person and i love talking with him and yeah yeah great would you want to yeah
0: tell more about what's going on here or anything yeah
1: (laughs) well so the property that that we're on we actually just bought it last month um and it's about so there's these four fields there's kind of the two that you passed as you just drove in and the two up above this road you know it's about maybe Fifteen acres or so, but there's another 35 acres in that direction, okay. um, where I'm just beginning to kind of get to learn it, and I'm also a mushroom enthusiast. So I'm, oh. I'm all the down wood and stuff. I'm very interested in seeing, finding out where the maitake is, and
0: oh wow, hopefully, have you seen some? Not yet. Yeah. Um, hopefully, oh.
1: that might, you know, I'll find that little uh, chanterelle paradise and nice, yes. that kind of stuff.
0: Have, uh, you, uh, have you read the mushroom at the end of the world?
1: I haven't. Who's oh, that? Oh,
0: it's about and, oh, okay. and like the global trade that uh, evolved around mytaki thin with like, and it's a talk about the collapse of capitalism. The you know, the not the collapse, but the being on the downside of capitalism and a global economy and how people are finding. you know a way to make a living at the margins and Mm being it's it's a really I have to really fascinating book I mean it's and if you if you like mushrooms it's worth checking out especially my and it talks about about how they cut they originate in disturbed landscapes so they're kind of like this great metaphor for this you know declining capitalism (laughs) uh, regeneration or you know sustenance within like a a, you know a, a, a landscape that has been Degraded or just disturbed, you know, right. in big and small ways. Um, fun book, anyway. Very cool. Yeah.
1: yeah, I'll have to. I'll have to get that book. Um, so, and we've got our, but we've got our mushroom, yard shiitake yard over here, and there's more down below and that kind of stuff. Nice. Um, I see we have a little fire blight coming in.
0: Oh, where? Let's see that. Oh, is that with these brown spots? Yeah. Death is. Yep. That's not related to freeze. That's fire blight.
1: Well, there's this whole. Th- Thing that's kind of popped up in conversation of freeze-induced fire blight because oh. you know we did have blossoms out when the frost came through um, and we are seeing fire blight in areas that we wouldn't normally expect it um, but yet here it is and yeah this is Dabinet and uh, oh no sorry this is been Rouge one of those late blooming french varieties so it was probably in bloom right as the frost hit so we kind of got whacked in two different ways one is that you had the the app the trees that were in bloom um, when the freeze hit uh, which didn't kill the flowers but now we've got the fire blight it didn't well it didn't it didn't kill the flowers 100 percent, which is a little bit of an odd thing but anything that had fruitlets on it which was earlier blooming didn't get fire blight but most of the fruitlets got frozen so
0: Autumn mentioned that as well last night about how some of the 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 things that were already had little fruitlets got toasted, but the the ones that were in flower, a lot of them survived. Right,
1: um, and it's a water content issue, and we've had a we have a a, a local Finger Lakes um, discussion group online, and we were discussing this, um, and it seems to be. Uh, at that point we were in a very low humidity environment and, you know, if it had been higher humidity, um, it wouldn't have been in bad, it it wouldn't, the, the, the freeze wouldn't have been as bad to the fruitlets, but that water just froze so quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, anything that was in the fruit, whereas there's, you're much more, I think the, and I don't know this for certain, but I think the sugars are much more concentrated in the, in the flowers. Um, and so they didn't freeze as easily because it's like almost It's almost all Sugar at that point because there's no like real water in the flour. So this I wanted to bring up this is an interesting little and this gets down to the R&E part of, of what apostrophe is here for is that um, One of my clients in New Jersey his daughter is a student at Cornell and she's very interested in um Plant insect interactions and what it has to do with with soil health, and I've been interested in picking up this project that was done about eight years ago at this point by um, a guy in in the Hudson Valley with the Hawthorne Valley Farmscape Ecology Program, where he was looking at at different management styles on the biodiversity in um, in orchards and. While we couldn't replicate that study, um, what we did is we, there's this one and another orchard that that I manage over in Dryden, where we decided to set it up and just kind of let the vegetation grow. We were going to set up some different types of insect um, traps. Uh, She was going to do plant mapping to see what plants are here. How does that change over the course of a season? What kind of insects is she seeing? how does that differ between the two different sites? And while we don't yeah, you know, we know that we're not going to come to any like grand conclusion at the end of this year. It does begin to create kind of some baseline um, data for uh, how do we carry this project forward um, in the future. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because at the two sites, she's starting to see some differences in the in the kind of insects that are that are there at the other orchard. It's a completely unmanaged. Well, that, let me rephrase that. Part of it is there's a managed orchard there, but then there's like a really old um, unmanaged orchard with about 300 different trees in it so that's pretty impressive um but she's starting to see some differences between the insect types that are at the orchards um but doing doing uh you know like net sweeps of the ground cover um and using these malaise traps which are they're up um all the time and the insects fly into it and then they can't get back out they're kind of caught in those little plastic cups you see on the top
0: Uh, so it's just a collection yeah device basically. yeah um,
1: but we can, somebody was camping out here it does it, it very much looks like a tent um, but the nice thing is we can we can catch we can monitor nocturnal insects that we weren't ah. going to normally get when she's out during the day right, right. Um, and then she's also using something called a burlesi funnel which we're taking soil samples and putting them into a funnel and putting a light on top of it which essentially drives the insects down into a collection cup and oh, okay. she's seeing different types of insects that are coming through that process as well. So, you know, we don't, I mean, we don't know a whole lot at this point, but there's starting to become some interesting differences between the two sites.
0: Are, do you know the Ecdysis Foundation?
1: I've heard of it, yeah.
0: They're doing a lot of, I mean, it's basically data collection at the moment, but you might want to, I mean, definitely somebody to talk to and and. Compare data with and stuff like that because mm-hmm. they're doing very similar stuff. And actually, some of your stuff sounds like even a little more, more in depth in terms of insect collection because I think they're doing sweeps and stuff like that. But yeah, this sounds. Yeah, I mean, the, anyway, really great thing. They're they're trying to collect data from a thousand different farms all in every environment mm-hmm. in North America, and so they're getting this huge data set. That they're already i think they've been at it a few years and they're already seeing they're going to be able to put data behind claims that are being made and as well as just like this is where this is clearly adding soil yeah i mean they're doing soil they're doing insect they're doing bird data um i forget what else they're doing but they're collecting data about more than just insects, so maybe that's yeah. You know, maybe right. they're, they're it's a broader, maybe not as deep, but definitely and that's broad. what the
1: Farm Escape Ecology Program did. They were looking at birds and bats and other types of things. Okay. And one of the interesting things that they came up with was that, you know, they were and they were doing recording sounds at night to find out what was oh, wow. out there. And conventional orchards were like dead silent at night, whereas organic huh. orchards were like a cacophony of different things. Yeah. And they were able to pick up different. Um, um, bat sounds as well and yeah. they were able to identify different bat species that way And I, I believe it was all using um cornell's cornell's um ornithology labs program called raven yeah, okay. which can record and then interpret i think oh, that's wow. yeah oh that's really cool um but that that was like one of the most intriguing things to me is, is like conventional orchards is just dead and yeah. that also clued me into um I think really wrapping my head around the fact that like almost all the activity that goes on in an orchard, insect-wise, yeah. bird-wise, bat-wise, happens at night. Yeah. So we're right. only seeing a fraction of what's actually going on in here. Yeah, animal-wise. Animal-wise, <laughs> right? Yeah. I think we have a bear in the woods. Yeah. You know, and it, somebody <laughs> spotted a. Actually, somebody spotted a black fisher in the neighborhood too, which was very weird. And um, somebody said there been there's been reports of, of porcupines. So, right. you know. The rewilding of the Hector, New York. So, um. <laughs> yeah,
0: right, they, I, I was talking to somebody. I was talking to a guy who was, did bats, and he's he had observations uh, in California of the bats literally just flying over a conventional vineyard. Uh, you know, like a huge conventional, just flying mm-hmm. straight over it, and to get to like a riparian area to hunt. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't. Even, they weren't even trying to hunt in the in the conventional vineyard because there's just like nothing to hunt there. It was right. just a dead zone for insects and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then you also, I mean, it, this whole idea of like it's like we're out here and we think like, oh, look at this wonderful teeming thing, and then at night, like the party starts once right. we once we're out of here. Everybody's like, all right, they're gone. Come on out, like, yeah, let's have let's have some fun. Um, that's fun.
1: Yeah, well, it's you know, it's kind of the you know, the parents go to bed and right. the kids come out and play sort <laughs> right, of thing. Right. Um, but the idea behind this project is to create that baseline and, and really carry it on as kind of a long-term ecological project and possibly apply for, well, not, not possibly, but the idea would be to apply for SARE funding um, to be able to carry it on as kind of a grower-driven research project. And the good thing is that we've got um, a couple of, of professors at, at Cornell that um, we're collaborating with on this in various levels um, one. I've worked with for a number of years on pollinator studies um, the other is I haven't I know who he is and we've met a couple of times but um, Is more in kind of this you know plant in inter, plant insect interaction world um, But the idea would be you know, I mean, I mean, let's have a party at night here yeah. And how, how do we do that? You know, yeah. I mean if we have to put a keg out here, we'll do that
0: <laughs> right right the uh i like that and well and i mean what i'm observing that people can't see is like you've mowed the aisles in in a in a couple aisles and then there's a couple that aren't mowed and and you're collecting in the unmowed aisle at least that that collection site is so Mm -hmm. what is what's thinking behind that
1: about the unmowed part yeah oh just i don't want to disturb the insects that are foraging in there or whatever um yeah it was I mean, there's a practical side. So it's for site. the insects? It's it... for the insects. It's for, you know, we want the plants to continue to grow and diversify. Reseed. Reseed, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um But it's basically just to not disturb the collection process. Okay. Um Whereas here, it's it was just getting difficult to do any work when right. it was this high. <laughs> right. Um And ticks were... All over the place. Are they really? Yeah. Wow.
0: This is the, you're the first person that said that. I've, I haven't, yeah. We haven't seen any except on a dog, mm. and uh, you know we've been walking all kinds of land, and we check ourselves religiously after our hikes, and haven't seen one yet. So, you're the first person to say that you yeah. have a special spot.
1: <laughs> well, I'm not, it's not loaded with ticks, but you know it's. I've, I. Um, one of my employees has had Lyme disease four times already, and wow. so I have to be cognizant that oh, there's yeah. a worker safety issue and oh, yeah. you know it's um i found one on me the other day that had already embedded itself and i'd only been out for like two hours oh so, whoa yeah
0: we'll check ourselves yes <laughs> constantly well, this is
1: why we're walking in the mud part of the orchard yes <laughs> got it, got yeah it.
0: makes sense i um, like that
1: yes so yeah um so we're at the top yeah, these, so these were the first trees that were planted. I planted this and worked my way down. Um, there have been some replacements. Um, I've allowed the trees to basically grow the way they wanted to, and apart from some training and stuff, I just I just didn't want to get in the middle of what they were gonna naturally do. And
0: they're now seven years old, eight years old?
1: These were planted in 2016, okay. so the grafting started in 2015, and then they were out in the field for a year two no, I think maybe they were actually planted in 2017 that's right because they were in my backyard till 2017 then I dug them and planted them that spring in 2017 okay Um, and I did start with some trees that I bought from Cummins nursery in addition to my grafted stuff
0: now you mentioned buying uh, one of your plant elements from the uh, Institute for apply can you talk about that Institute for applied biodynamics And what your role is there, because aren't you pretty active with them?
1: Yeah, so, um, and I love the view. It is a nice view. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the Josephine Porter Institute for Applied Biodynamics is now in, I think it's 36th year. Um, It was started in the early 80s by a guy named Hugh Courtney, who was probably the preeminent uh, biodynamic preparation maker in the United States at that time um he was very very much of a practical farmer but also an alchemist and um and it was named after josephine porter who um she was also a biodynamic farmer and preparation maker and and um yeah anyway so it, it got started and it started out small but basically they were making preparations to be able to sell to the broader public they had a publication called um Uh, applied biodynamics which allowed for uh, articles to be written on you know the making of biodynamic preparations, the utilization of biodynamic preparations, some of the more cosmic aspects of what was going on, the anthroposophical side of of biodynamics, and in the last 34 years it just kind of it's grown um, into what it is today which is you know much larger and more uh, complex of an organization. I joined jpi in 2016 i think um, as an editor for applied biodynamics and i have i guess uh, moved up in the organization um, and i'm now in my second year as president of jpi and we're in the process of going through some as a lot of organizations do um, of reorganization and reinventing ourselves but always maintaining um, the the overall objective of producing um, significant volumes of biodynamic preparations at the highest quality that we can. And that's, that's always a process because it's a very, it's, I mean, there's some very precise protocols when it comes to making biodynamic preparations, but it's still also very much of an evolutionary process um, and very, um, I think, dependent on where you are, you know, in the world locally. Um, right like I know biodynamic preparation makers that are making preparations at 9,000 feet in Colorado or in Australia <laughs> or South America right. and they have access to different plants. The climate's different, et cetera, et cetera. So Got
0: it. now where are we in the world right here? I don't think we established where this land actually sits in yeah, the well
1: we are, we're in Hector, New York, um, on the east side of Seneca Lake kind of, I guess it's about what, 12 miles north of Watkins Glen. Um, and we can see to the other side of Seneca, but this is basically grape country. And I mean, there's not many orchards um, around Seneca Lake. Probably the most substantial would be um, Red Jacket Orchards, which is up in Geneva. Um, but apart from that, this is this is wine grape country, um, and some table grapes thrown in too. Yeah. So, but Central New York, Finger Lakes, you know, we're 20 miles from uh, Ithaca, 12 miles from Watkins Glen.
0: Looking west towards Seneca Lake.
1: Yep. Right? Yeah. And if we were 25 feet tall, we probably could see the lake. Right. <laughs> or had a helicopter or something.
0: Now, so you mentioned high vibrational food and beverage, mm-hmm. just transitioning us. Um, how did you get to that point? And what, what does that mean to you? And how did you get to that point coming from? the background that you did i know i mean you've already talked a little bit about your journey but like Mm -hmm. did you you know was it a step-by-step process or like and where are you with that now well i know it's like 10 questions
1: it's like 10 questions (laughs) that i'll answer in 100 (laughs) answers perfect Um, yeah um well how did i get to that point so i think a lot of it is that as i started to break out of this box that i felt like i was in for the first 20 years of my career um, and to think more expansively and more holistically and I got into biodynamics and other things um, I I came to this and it was also sort of an exploration of uh, certain you know spirituality Um, oh yeah the strawberries are like all over the place Um, you know I began to realize that that everything is it's, it's the web of life. It's all energetic. I mean, it's, I mean, you get it down to kind of the quantum or quark level. I mean, it's all just about the flow of energy and you know, we can think about that in a really woo woo sort of way, or we can think about it. You know, the reality is, is that there's electrochemical reactions that are going on, you know, in nature and in our bodies and between ourselves all the time. Um, and, 10 years ago, when I was um, a bit more able to do things like sprint triathlons and I was swimming a lot and whatnot, I started listening to a podcast by a guy named Rich Roll, who brings a lot of these concepts in from a human perspective. Not necessarily, well, he has some farmers on there, um, but mostly it's from a human perspective. But just thinking about. You just
0: made a distinguishing, you just distinguished between a farmer and a human there. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, hu- hu- hum- hu-
1: yeah, human health, hu- how humans take care of themselves from a, uh, a health standpoint versus farmers who are taking care of, oh, gotcha. of farm and okay. crops. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's this AI farmers out there. Right. That's yeah. True. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's probably not too far in our future. Well, actually, if you follow it's the present, right? Yeah. In places, yeah. When you look at high tech stuff. Um. And um, anyway, so I started thinking about it, it wasn't what it, it, it it, it brought a lot more things into focus and raised some more questions, um, about, it wasn't just what we were doing to grow the crops that we had, you know, it wasn't just organic, you know, it was about, what is that actually doing to the plant, to the crop, to the environment? And what does that mean? Not just to human health, but to the health of the, the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I mean the earth is an organism right Um, and so then you get into this whole concept of high vibrational um, food and there's a big part of it that is like it's it is how it's grown and so organic is one way Mm -hmm. conventional is another biodynamic is a way holistic completely non-spray is another it's about the environment that it's being grown in you know how healthy that is that there's a lot of organic farms out there which are basically just industrial landscapes for growing whatever they happen to be growing. Um, and then it's also the intention that the person puts into it. And so if when you're really leaning into the work and, and focused on doing the best that you can in the best way possible with the highest intention, then you elevate the energetic value of that food or beverage um, to a higher level. Um, there's lots of you know, kale in the world or spinach or apples or grapes for that matter. But if you're not really paying attention to why you're doing what you're doing and you're not doing it in the best way possible, you know, it's gonna be, there's going to be a different energetic potential within that, within that food. Yeah. And so I think about that a lot, you know, particularly with, with what I'm doing here, um, with what other people are doing and with the clients that I work with. Um, of how are they leaning into the work Um, how are they applying the recommendations that that i make Um, or how are they thinking about okay so how can i take this to another level Mm -hmm. so instead of just like applying fertilizer even an organic dry fertilizer how can i do something like using compost or compost teas or plant teas um, or doing indigenous microbe work to bring more of the environment more of that natural energy into the system yeah Um, and even microbial you know um, I do a lot of I do a lot of lab tests Um, well I don't do them I send them (laughs) send them to a lab to do them but I interpret them (laughs) and I started to send um, almost routinely um, as long as the grower um, approves of the cost Sending uh, soil samples in to have biological assessments done of that soil. What's the what's the biological life? What's the biological health of that soil? And invariably, um, it's pretty low. Um, there's just there's not much going on there. That's not hundred percent true, but m- more often than not, you know, if there is enough um, total uh, fungal and bacterial um, levels in the soil. They're, they're just barely optimal or the, the, mm. the, the ratios are um, you know, not right. There's, right. It's more bacterial than fungal, which in a perennial ecosystem, we want to have a more fungally driven right. um, type of soil. And then when you start looking at, okay, the aerobic bacteria and the aerobic fungi, um, oftentimes those are below the optimal levels that are set. And so how do we go about not only just bringing the biological components to a higher level but how do we get more aerobic activity going in there and a lot of that this is why you know i don't think that you can just not do anything with a with a, a piece of land you have you have to work with it intervene guide steward whatever the work, word is to help help it improve itself right. it, it'll do it in time eventually i mean yeah. you know in 10,000 years this is going to look far different than it does today um, you know, but, you know, this is what old growth forests are about. I mean, it took them thousands of years to get to that point where they have these really strong, you know, right. fungally driven and you know rich, you know, aerobic soils um, that drive all this diversity, which is why old growth forests are so important to global biodiversity. Right. And um, I mean, you've probably experienced it, but I remember watching. I think it was fantastic fungi when Paul Stamets was walking through the orchard where you could just literally feel the soil bounce underneath your feet. And that's because there's all that aerobic activity that's going on under there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, there's so many
0: practical reasons to go for that as well. I mean, they're finding of course with the mycelium is what's, uh, preventing or helps drought tolerance because you have this whole network of things that are holding, holding the moisture in the soil, um, mining, mining elements that the yeah. the you know the trees can't get too deep in the soil yeah i i, I mean just anecdotally like i've been thinking i hadn't you know i had you know when you brought this up i was like oh this is right up my alley but i don't, I don't have any particular thoughts but actually i, I realized i have had a lot of thoughts because i didn't know what you meant about it but like i i just noticed as a drinker of wine specifically there I'll drink, I drink a wide variety of things. Like I usually, I don't buy things for myself that are not grown in, with intention and, and and love and, you know, ecological awareness and stuff like that anymore. But I often taste them. And I've noticed that when I've, you know, been to friends' house who are pouring wine, that I'm, you know, I'm just drinking whatever they're pouring for me. Those are the nights, and I know it's not the kind of wine that I would buy, those are the nights when I get a hangover. Right. Or, you know, or like a, It's not necessarily a hangover. I don't, you know, I'm never drinking that much or I'm just like hammered, but I'm getting, I wake up the next day and, and I have like a, like, like I'm starting to get these weird sinus related migraine type things, Mm -hmm. but they're often triggered by wine, but not usually the kind of wine that I like to, to buy myself. And I started thinking that too. I was like, you know, I can think about how these were probably made. And, you know, they probably weren't like, High intervention. I mean, yes, they're conventional wines, so there's probably filtration, all these things. But I think, like, honestly, I was like, I'm beginning to think that the difference is really just in the energy with which they were produced, like the intention with which they were produced. Because it's like, I know, you know, that, like, really, like, when you just get down to a molecular level, like alcohol, if you drink too much alcohol, it's not, you know, it's not, I don't have a sulfate allergy. I know, you know, al- I'm not drinking enough alcohol to be, like, hungover in that way from alcohol toxicity so then it's like you know what is it like you know what is mm-hmm. causing these headaches and this thing to trigger in me that i wake up feeling bad the next day and i think this is like anecdotally what people talk about with natural wine a lot of times is like like oh it doesn't give you a hangover and it's like well any wine will give you a hangover just drink enough of it you know sure. but if you're drinking wine that is made with intention and it's a, an intention the intentionality that you're talking about a higher level intentionality maybe that translates to the wine. I mean, this is where my mind has been going. So the fact that you're saying all this is really, really intriguing. Like, because it, it, I feel it. I feel like you can feel it. Like, yeah. if you start paying attention, if you drink enough wine like I do, or too much, you know. Yeah. It's really interesting.
1: Well, I mean, it, I think it speaks to kind of a, a larger idea that I don't subscribe to, and you don't, and a lot of people we know don't, but that humans are not a part of nature. Right. You know, right. and it's the same thing, you know, there's, I mean, you know, any Nimrod can crush some grapes and throw some yeast in there and put it in a carboy and, you know, ferment something. Right. But if they're really not leaning into with the work with intention, thinking about what they're doing, and especially with the, the way the grapes were were grown, um, you know, it's, it, you're just making fermented grape juice with alcohol. Yeah. You might as well go buy some Welch's and pour some vodka in it. Yeah. Um, but I think that 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 intentional part, because we are a part of that whole process, yeah. you know, you know, it's the it's the growing of the grapes, um, how they're grown, what you're doing when you're out there in the field with it, um, and I think this speaks to uh, this is like, you know, when we talk about like high tech in agriculture, you know, when you get these really fancy tractors or even robotic tractors where the farmer never sets foot in this field because it's all GPS and they. Can, plant and harvest and spray without ever you know how can they know what's going on out there how can they be a part of that process other than sitting in a computer screen that part i just don't get you know and um, and i mean i'll be the first to admit i don't get to spend as much time in the orchard this orchard as i would like but enough to where i'm a part of what's going on here um and i think there's another thing is that i had this concept that especially conventional pesticides but all, 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 all pesticides, even organic, to some degree, I think mute the energetic level of the plant because they don't, in the same way, like if, you know, um, I don't know, if you were just taking prophylactically antibiotics for whatever stupid reason, right? You're not (laughs) allowing your body, your immune system, um, to, to build up to a high enough level. Um, and by using these pesticides, we're not allowing the plant to grow, you know, to develop its immune system to a high enough level. Um, And so we have to, we have have to think about that. And that's where I think that while even organic sprays, even some of the bio sprays that I use like double nickel are, can be considered to be allopathic. You know, I still think that they're more expansive. They they open up opportunities in a way that other types of pesticides don't because they shut down the ability of that plant to be what it needs to be.
0: I, I think about this all the time. Like I'm really starting to get bummed out even just bring sulfur you mm-hmm. know in California on our vines because it's like I'm beginning to think with this intention thing it's like anything like that comes from this intention to suppress or eradicate or eliminate or you know right. disrupt it's like a it's like a, a negative energy like it's we want to focus on the bad and try to screw with it so it can't be good mm-hmm. or so it can't thrive as opposed to the opposite you know thinking p- focusing on the positive, having the intention to build vibrancy and build resistance and resilience in the plant, you know, to activate like probiotic elements to activate like the, the genetic, you know, or, and epigenetic elements of the plants. I think about that all the time now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, I almost feel like I feel the plants that way. Like I'm beginning to get maybe to that extent where it's like, I really don't think the vines are, Crazy about sulfur you know mm-hmm. like I just look at them and they're just sort of like eh, you know they're like meh you know as opposed to when I've done like a compost tea spray or something like that they it feels different you know it just has a different energy and the vines mm-hmm. seem to respond differently to it which sounds really weird but like I don't know I, maybe I'm an empath <laughs> I'm no well happy. I mean yeah.
1: but I look at it's I look empath. at these trees and what we've been doing to them the past few years how we've been managing it and you know the the reality is is like they look beautiful. We, I, I, you know, I use Cueva just because it has some unique characteristics to it and it is copper. So it's, you know, kind of in that sulfur realm, but I use so little of it that it's just like, it's almost irrelevant. But when I look at these trees and I look how healthy they are, um, you know, I, it's like, we're in a way we're, you know, we're, we're creating, we're helping to create something as opposed to dissolve something. You know, we're not dissolving the plant's ability to take care of itself. We're creating greater potential, and it it needs to be nurtured. I mean, we can't. I think it's somewhat naive to think that as as farmers that we shouldn't intervene. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think it, and going this goes to like a Masanobu Fukuoka approach. He's you know his whole do nothing approach, right. and just like. I, I don't know if he was quoted or it's, I'm paraphrasing it, but basically he said, you know, do nothing approach doesn't mean to do nothing. It just means to do as little as possible, intervene as little as possible. And that's kind of what, what I try and do here.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, apart from the little bit of fire blight, which is a different deal. Um, I'm, I'm blown away by how vibrant the trees look this year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know they look and great. they do look yeah. great. and it's the same thing with the or, the orchard understory. I mean you know in a in a conventional orchard and even some organic even organic orchards, I mean the quote unquote weeds, the plants underneath the plant uh, the trees you know they're eradicated, you know um, whether it's through mechanical means or chemical means or whatever and fertilizers are put down and it's still a very allopathic mindset i wrote an article about this in uh, for malice magazine Uh, um, about shifting consciousness that even on the organic level we need to figure out how do we how do we get out of this spraying mindset um from a from a suppressive like you were saying like from a suppressive perspective and more into a um, um progressive a growth perspective of helping the plant because even though I said earlier that plant breeding takes years to really get new varieties in there, there is the reality that most of these plants in here probably do have some genes which aren't just being triggered on. Yeah. And and that's where I think a lot of this comes in. And you can't put your finger on it. Well, I suppose you, on some level you can. Uh, like, what do we do to help trigger the right genes in here so that it's... Oh,
0: my God. <laughs> Sorry
1: so that there's um, you know, less susceptibility to apple scab or less susceptibility to codling moth or, or anything along those. Or in the case of grapes, less susceptibility to downy mildew. You know, how do we trigger those genes if they're there? And I think the only way we can do that is to nurture the plants, to get them to their highest potential, highest vibrational potential through working with soil health, both in terms of additions, biological additions, compost, you know, indigenous microbes, um, but also the sprays on the tree, the plants that grow under the tree, you know. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And um, I, I mean, really aligns with everything that I am thinking too about. I mean, like you were talking about, the once you kind of understand that sort of quantum physics, it's all energy expressing in different ways. And then you realize, well, like all the different ways that we approach it are sort of metaphoric anyway. So we're all pointing at the same thing. We're using mm-hmm. different language, whether it's like a religious language or a you know, biodynamic something, you know, that language or new agey or whatever, or whether it's the language of science, but that is starting to touch on <laughs> these things. You know, yeah, it really feels like just metaphors, mm-hmm. you know, metaphors for what we're, uh, for the same thing. Um, and it's really interesting. Me. And we
1: and we have to try we have to figure out you know what works best for each of us because you know my site's different than autumn's site which is different than right. eric's site which is different than alfie's site you know right. or something like that and, and you're
0: all different people and is, we're all different people which which you, yeah i think you're saying is another really important element to any farm which is like what the energy that you bring the intention the the impact and intervention that you bring mm. is part of the farm it shouldn't, and it's it's positive i mean it can be positive it can be beneficial should be part of the farm um Mm -hmm. and and should inspire us to probably a sense of responsibility and care like carefulness because we're not just like you know we're not you can't remove yourself from it first of Mm -hmm. all and 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 then once you you know admit that then you you know whether you are trying to make an impact or not you are and so you should Think about that impact and, mm-hmm. and think about how you can make it the best impact it can be and how you can help enhance, you know, be part of a system that uh, is, I mean, I'm, I don't know, I'm trying to paraphrase what you're saying mm-hmm. or restate it, but you would go on. You were talking mm-hmm. about the different, different, each, everybody's farm is different. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, we have, to, we, you know, that's, that's like a biodynamic principle is that the farm individuality, I mean, right. you know, and the farmer being a part of the farm, you know, that we, we are a part of that. It's not just about the trees and the flowers and whatnot. It's about, it's about us as well and the surrounding environment. I mean, it wasn't just Steiner, but it was other people who talked about how, I mean, life lives on the edges. I mean, very prominent ecologists have in wilderness areas talk about how life is on the edges. So how can we bring more of that in to the orchard without, you know, shading the, <laughs> the orchard that's out right, so right. that, you know, it never photosynthesizes. And yeah. I think that's, you know, that's, that's a challenge as well. Um, I
0: love that. Well, you, this is, taps into and maybe a good transition to the thing that I'm very passionate about, which is vines and growing vines with trees, mm-hmm. which I think is part of that forest edge ecology. And you know, two species that have been married for most of their life until, you know, we separated them recently. Mm-hmm. And I love. Uh, and you, you have some stuff going around here, right? Some wild riparia. Do you have plans to do something with? Um, I do. Well, that's the end of part one. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks for listening. And if you're interested to find out what happens next when Mike and I leave the orchard and enter the forest, it becomes a very different conversation and very interesting. And I'm just going to leave this as a cliffhanger, and you'll have to tune in to part two coming out later this week. Thanks so much for listening. To be continued.